Uh, we are in our, our study of the book of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's the story of Jesus told by, by John Mark. And uh, the, the, we're really focusing on, on the concept of come follow me. That Jesus Christ has, has in, invited you, each one of you individually, which is the really cool thing. He hasn't just thrown out a, like, a, a call to everybody. Hey, everybody follow me. It's a personal call. He loves you. He wants you, and he has asked you to come follow me. And, and so that's been really exciting these first few weeks uh, to go through. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 3. Today we're going we're gonna to do a little chunk of verses, so we're going to kind of rapidly move through them. Uh, and uh, we're, we're really going to see just kind of Jesus talking uh, and, and reacting in a couple different ways to the idea of family. Uh, remember how we talked about Mark, how he kind of just boom, 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 goes from one story to the next. So traditional, uh, or I should say, um, the, the fashion that we've already seen, we're going to see here today, every few verses, uh, he'll be changing it up. But I think it all ties together really nice. So let's play a little name, ga- a little game. We're going we're gonna to say, name that show. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to put up a picture of a TV show, and I'm asking that if you know the title of the TV show, that you would just go ahead and feel comfortable enough to yell it out, if you could, because uh, I think it's going to play into what we're looking at today. Wow. I knew you guys were young, and, and this only ran from 77 to 81. Eight is enough. Cameo came through for me. If, if somebody else yelled it, I just didn't hear you. I appreciate it, though. That one, I'll be honest, I looked at it, and I was like, I know that TV show, but I don't know who that is because we Googled family TV shows, and that one popped up without a name on it. So that might have been the most difficult. But here, we got a few more. So yell out. Malcolm in the middle, right? The Wonder Years. Leave it to Beaver. See, I heard a lot of people there. Even if you're old or younger, everybody knows the, the Leave it to Beaver TV show. Cosby Show, good. Full House, I put that one in there for Cole, my son. He loves that TV show, so I just threw that in there. He, he really loves that one. Brady Bunch, right? Family Ties. I threw that one up uh, while the worship team was going, and I think only two of us knew who it was. So that tells you the average age of our worship team. Family matters, right. And that's what we're going to be focusing in on today. Family does matter. Do you, do you notice this theme, though, for all those TV shows that I put up there? Family, right. And I kind of gave you the, 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 the answer to it before we started, um, but really, like I said, that, that last one that I put a picture up there, that's kind of the focus. That's the big idea of today is that family matters. All of us come from a family. It may be traditional, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, and you're moving on, right? It may be a broken family. It may be fragmented, dysfunctional. It may be amazing when you talk about your family. You may have nothing but good to speak about. And it may be painful for some of you sitting out there today uh, when we discuss family, when we talk about family, it's not an enjoyable subject. It could be comical, healthy, unhealthy, but, but it was some sort of a family we all came from. Beautifully and as a gracious gift giver, God has given us 
a brand new family in Jesus Christ. That's a truth today I want you to walk away from. No matter what your family was like, and even if it was amazing, you have also been given an incredible gift by God through Jesus Christ of a new family. And that family is those who are sitting around you today. It's intended to be healthy and life-giving, and it's going to be forever. Because when our time on earth is through, it will continue on in heaven. So today we are going to look at family. Because family matters. We're going to jump right into verse 7. If you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it up so you can take notes or maybe circle something or highlight something uh, that catches your eye or that you hear. Uh, And maybe you can look at it a little bit later. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, back on the grab a Bible table, we have some Bibles there. You're welcome to go grab one even now as I'm talking and make that your own. Uh, Put your name in that. Write some notes in there. Those sorts of things. Let it be a gift from us to you. Um, and uh, we want you to have God's word in your hand. I will have the words up here, so you can follow along up there if you want to also. And I'm going to start in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and, and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Jesus withdrew, it says here, with his disciples to the sea. Uh, And the last thing we read in verse 6 last week, it was that the Pharisees had begun plotting on how they could get rid of Jesus with the Herodians. I don't know if you were here, if you remember that. Now, Jesus isn't afraid of death. In fact, at the proper time, he is going to go willingly to the cross by his own choosing, okay? But this is not the proper time. He's still raising up the family of God, beginning with his disciples, and then all the ministry that he is going to do. So he withdraws from this potential mob, let's say, with his disciples and continues his perfect timing of the path towards the cross, But as he left, as he withdrew, as he took off with his disciples to try to get a little uh, relief, let's say, from the crowds and and all the healing and the speaking that he was doing, it says that a great crowd followed him. The many locations that they came from here give us a picture of what was going on. This wasn't like he left one town where he did a miracle and there were still a few people that were interested, or a few people that wanted to talk to him more, or a few people that still needed healing. We are likely talking about tens of thousands of people following Jesus. Now, I'm telling you the flannel graph that, that, that Mrs. Runbeck put up at Central Baptist Church all those years ago showed a nice picture of Jesus talking to a crowd of about 30 or 40. Right? I mean, that's what I would thought of in the past. I mean, that's where my brain would go. That Jesus was talking to people. They were sitting on the hillside. They were having these nice conversations. But here, this crowd was enormous. Imagine filling up the Tacoma Dome with people, you know, solid, maybe standing room only. And then as a speaker, you leave and everybody follows you. Right? 20, 20 plus thousand people maybe. And, and Jesus just wanted to get away. 
He, he is trying to escape for a few minutes with his disciples. If there was a verified healer of any disease or any affliction that was in town, let's say, for the weekend, and you didn't have an opportunity to get close enough to talk to him, would you not be tempted to follow him too? If your child was sick, if you were sick, if you needed that healing, that touch, would you not travel as far as you had to? Do whatever you had to in order to get them healed? I know I would. And that's what this crowd did. This mass of humanity, right, is following Jesus. And they're far from being mild-mannered. They are desperate. If you've ever been in the hospital with a loved one who was sick or hurt or failing in their health, you will know the desperation that can take over you. And here they are trying to see Jesus. They want to be healed by Jesus. And look what Jesus had to do in order to avoid personal harm for he and the disciples. It says here, picking up in verse 9, he told his disciples to have a boat ready. They were up against the sea, and they, they, he said, have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him. Again, highlighting, Mark chooses his words very, very uh, distinctly. And that word crush there uh, meant that Jesus was fearing for per, against personal harm, right? For he had healed so many uh, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus had authority over sickness and the demons. And, and, and this made him a very popular man. Large crowds, though, can quickly become dangerous. And Jesus was smart enough to have a strategy uh, to avoid being trampled to death, right? He wanted this boat. Get this boat. Have it ready. His power and his authority over sickness was so great that we read in uh, other gospels that people just had to touch the hem of his coat and they could find healing. And word was getting around. The cool part of this story is the faith of all of those who believed Jesus could heal him. Jesus could heal them. But the sad part of the story is the, the, the people didn't come. This crowd didn't show up because of what Jesus was saying, but only because of what he did. And we'll see that throughout this gospel and the other gospels, is that people were more concerned about themselves and the things that Jesus could do for them than the kingdom that Jesus was trying to usher in. They were saying, what could Jesus do for me? Sadly, even as believers, uh, we are often more interested in, in what can Jesus do for me, right? What can he do for my family? What can he do for our church than what Jesus can do in us to change who we are? And I think that's an area that we can grow in as a church, start looking at what can you do in us, Jesus, in our lives so that we can further your kingdom, through sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's easy to get excited about physical fitness and health at the beginning of a year, right? We're coming up into 2020, 
And there's a lot of us that are going to have some great ideas, and we're going to start out really, really strong. But we are far less prone to get excited about spiritual fitness and health. And so my challenge to you today, as your friend, as your pastor, is as you start thinking about maybe some, some good New Year's resolutions, that although the, the fitness and the health are important, think about your spiritual fitness and health. And mark some of those things down. And, and if you don't really even know where to go with that, talk to some of your friends or, or somebody in your community group or one of us pastors. Let's not be that people. Let, let's long far more for what Jesus wants to do in us and how he wants to change us than just the temporary of what Jesus can do for us. Verses 11 and 12 here as we're moving forward, they're dripping with irony. The religious leaders who should have recognized Jesus, they knew the Old Testament. They had all the prophecies of who was coming, the Messiah. And yet they chose to look for their kind of Messiah instead of the one who was prophesied about. But here we see in in, uh, verses 11 and 12, although these religious leaders won't acknowledge who Jesus is or who he was here to be. They actually stood against him. But the demons, though, they recognized Jesus. You are the son of God. Look at that quote. You are the son of God. The demons who were possessing people said, you are the son of God. They acknowledged Jesus for who he was. It says that they fell down before him. Now, don't forget, Jesus doesn't want or need this sort of free advertising. People are already coming, and they're already coming for the wrong reasons. He didn't need demons uh, to, to be advertising for him. And so he tells these demons, strictly orders them not to make him known. Again, Jesus has a timeline for what he wants to accomplish here on this earth. Jesus is still forming his family. He's doing it in a real hands-on way. He's spending time with his disciples. He's spending time with those who are following him. He didn't have fancy seminars necessarily to, to send people to, right? Go to this place and that. No, he was spending time. He was on the job, right? On the job training, let's say. He was saying, come follow me. Walk with me. See what I'm doing. See how I am asking you to live. And he's been doing this. He's been teaching. He's been healing. But he also needs a little time alone with his disciples. And we see that Jesus withdraws here in the next verses to formalize his tightest group, the 12 disciples. And that's where we're going to pick up here in verse 13. It says, he went up the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Again, we see Mark telling the story. Quick, giving you everything you need to know, and moving on. After this crazy mob, right, and and this, this huge church service, and healing people, And speaking about the kingdom of God, it says he went up into the mountain and he called those whom he desired. And they came to him. And and Jesus here will formally appoint some disciples. And he does it for a few reasons. The demands of ministry, right, and the enormity of the task 
demanded it. He needed those guys close to him. He couldn't do it alone, and he didn't want to do it alone, which leads me to the next thing, is healthy ministry is a multiplying ministry. If you find yourself in any sort of ministry, I don't care if it's setting up the curtains, teaching in children's ministry, running a community group, or preaching on Sunday, you need to be raising people up by the power of the Holy Spirit and in humility to do the work with you. So that if you don't show up because you're sick, there's somebody else to do it. Or if God calls you to move on, there's somebody else to take your place. We as followers of Jesus Christ have all been called to do kingdom ministry. And if you find yourself in a place where you're doing kingdom ministry, great. Now start bringing somebody else along with you to do the ministry. Jesus knows this is important And so he calls these 12 disciples. We've seen five of them in the stories that Mark has laid out so far. But it was a total of 12. And he brings them up to the mountain and he makes the call official. For you and I, though, we need to remember that in light of the ministries we're involved in. If you haven't been equipped to bring people up to help you in ministry, come talk to Dave and myself. We would love to help you move down that path. And if you're here today and you're saying, I'm getting to know this church and I'm liking it, but I'm not involved in ministry, I would like to be plugged in somewhere. Again, come talk to Dave or myself, Raul, Mish, Linda, Hayden, whoever it might be, if God is calling you to a particular area of ministry. Be that person who comes in and supports what's going on. Luke 6, 12 records that Jesus uh, spent the whole night praying before choosing his followers. I'm just going to pull that little nugget in there. As we were studying this week, we saw that. So if you find yourself in ministry and you find yourself alone, uh, lonely in ministry, and you feel like nobody's walking with you, Jesus gave us the example. Fall into prayer. Lean on God to bring along those whom he desires. And then come talk to Dave or myself, because we'll help you also. But pray about it. God does not intend for you to do this alone. It says that he appointed the 12. The word appoint is important. It comes from the Greek word made, right? Jesus made these men, which should encourage you and me. Because if you look at these guys and you look at their stories, especially if you dive into other gospels or, you know, and read about where they came from, this was a ragtag group, right? That wouldn't have made the cut in too many circles. They were outcasts. They were from simple backgrounds. They were sinners, we talked about Matthew, the, 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 the publican, the, the tax collector, one of those who was probably most hated amongst his own people. And yet Jesus said, no, I'm calling you. He doesn't choose you and I based on who we are today. Jesus knows what we can become. He doesn't look to our yesterday. He looks to our future. And that's what he chooses you and I on. So if your past is less than perfect, that's okay. Jesus' call to you and on your life remains the same. He loves you and his desires to work in you and to make you into the man or the woman that he knows you can be. 
And that's what he does here with the disciples. He designates them apostles, which means a person who's commissioned or sent. And our author points out that they were being commissioned for, right, being sent out to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to cast out demons. So again, Mark giving us all the details that we need. Now, the precursor to any good ministry is being with Jesus. So, again, this applies to you and I. If I want to do good ministry on Sunday morning, sitting up here and preaching or meeting with you throughout the week or being involved in my community group, I need to spend time with Jesus. And Jesus gives us the example here that these men, no matter how messed up they have been, he is preparing them for ministry by spending time with them. So if you want to be involved in ministry and you want your ministry to be good, but you're not sure exactly what that's going to look like, start praying about it and start spending time with Jesus. When we were talking this week, Kevin and I, we, we, we thought about the mission statements that churches put out. Uh, each church seems to always gravitate towards one, and it gives them a little direction, a little bit of vision. And one that we've seen a lot is to know him and to make him known, right? And that's talking about God. That's talking about Jesus Christ. It's a relationship there. And the more we thought about that this week, the more we talked about that this week, that was really the commission to the apostles. And it's the commission to every New Testament believer. We need to know God. And we can do that by knowing Jesus Christ, his son, and making him known, sharing the good news, whether it's in your family, in your neighborhood, at work, or around the world. Again, Jesus is giving us everything we need to know, and he's doing that through the book here that Mark wrote. Picking up in verse 16, it says, He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, uh, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, I don't know. That is Sons of Thunder. Let's just call it that. Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, time doesn't uh, permit us to talk about each one of these apostles today. We only know about five of them so far in Mark, so there's still some more there. Um, But there are some things just to note real quick. There are 12. Jesus chose 12 disciples, right? Just like there are 12 tribes of Israel. This is likely a nod to the fact that God is not finished with Israel, God sent his son Jesus Christ to show the way and to open up the opportunity for sinful mankind to right their relationship with God, not just the children of Israel, the chosen children, but to continue on what he actually did in the Old Testament, which was open up that relationship to others, to those outside. But God is not turning his back on Israel, and here I believe that's a a little bit of a nod there. Twelve disciples, twelve tribes of Israel. Again, if you want to see more about these disciples, I would encourage you to read the other Gospels. They have their stories, where they came from. And 
one thing that we found interesting in this list here was the way that Mark talked about the 12th and final disciple that Jesus called. He chose and called the one that he knew would betray him. You might think, uh, Mark, what are you doing? You're a poor writer. You're, you're giving a spoiler about what's going to happen. However, for you and I, it helps us know that Jesus or that God was not surprised by this betrayal. It was part of his divine plan from the beginning. Jesus called the 12. Picking up in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. All right, here we go. This is getting to sound a little bit more like some Thanksgiving dinners that you might have been involved in. But let's go through through this real quick here. He went home, and a crowd gathered again, right? So after appointing the twelve... Jesus returns to the daily grind of ministry. We don't know how much time, whether he had just come back from the mountain with the 12 or whether he'd been doing ministry again, but the crowds start gathering and they become unruly, so many that Jesus didn't even have time to eat. Now, whether it was because he couldn't get to the food or the food couldn't get to him, or was he just that busy, Mark says there was no time for him to even eat. And then we see when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him. Now, this is crazy. His family hears about what's happening, and they think Jesus is out of his mind. They use a really, Mark uses a really strong word here, seize. It can be translated, take into custody, or arrest. They weren't just coming to help out Jesus or maybe take him into a little quiet area so that he could get some rest or get some food. They wanted to get him and remove him from this situation. We see the strong words there. He is out of his mind. Now, I know that there are some moms and some grandmas probably even sitting out there today that would get a little bit crazy if their kid wasn't able to eat, right? And, and they would do whatever they could to get him a sandwich and a banana and something to drink, right? We've got to get him some energy. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this was family. It could have been extended family outside of his, his you know, close-knit family, the mom and the dad and the, and the brothers. But he, here, this is kind of extreme, right? And what they have heard about probably is relating to the recent conflicts with the religious leadership. His breaking of the Sabbath, right? And that's made him a target. That's also made them uh, probably unpopular with the religious leaders of the day. Maybe even the, the Pharisees have tried to enlist some of Jesus' family, thinking, man, if we could get his cousins to talk to him or get an uncle, maybe to speak into his life, maybe get him to settle down and stop doing what he's doing. When in fact... If they really knew what Jesus was doing and who he was, they would want to be ushering in the reign of Jesus, right? Bringing the kingdom of God to this world. Both Luke 4 and John 4 have a saying that a a prophet in his hometown has no honor. We see that in in a couple of the other gospels uh, at this time in the story here. Meaning it's often uh, difficult for those who are the closest to us to accept teaching or rebuke 
from us. And that's, that's why it's so important uh, as parents to look for and enlist other people to speak into your children's lives. And that's not just the local church. That's not just what's going on right now in kids' ministry. Those things are important. But from day one, I looked for godly men to be involved in our lives, our families' lives, right, and connect with them so that they would have a voice into my son's lives. Because I know I couldn't do it alone. When dad tells a child, especially as they're getting older, to do or not to do something, it's easier for that child to not listen to or ignore it coming from dad than maybe from another man who can speak into his life. And it's the same for women. My wife looked for other women in her world that would be able to speak into Abby's lives. Those who are closest to us sometimes won't accept that rebuke, that teaching, that training. And here we see there's a divide between Jesus and his family, at at least for the time. We don't know again exactly which part of his family or who it was, but we see here that they thought he was out of his mind. And now sandwiched between this little family matter and, and another in just a few verses There's a fascinating conversation between Jesus and the scribes. So remember where we're coming from here, and let's continue on. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Like his family, the religious elite of the day don't recognize Jesus as God. Instead, they say he, he, he's doing this work by Satan himself. He's saying, uh, this guy isn't the son of God. They're accusing him of being the son of Satan. They cannot contradict that Jesus is driving demons out or healing or, or speaking with authority, right? So they must find another explanation for it. And we see here that the scribes say, well, we can't give, we can't associate this power to God. So we'll say that Jesus is doing it by the power of Satan. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. So Jesus calls to them, the scribes that is, and spoke to them in parables. And we see four different ones here. He doesn't shy away from the confrontation. He has a stinging rebuke and a a stern warning for this kind of insanity, right? Who's out of their minds now? Remember, they just blamed Jesus for being out of his mind. But Jesus says, you want to talk about Satan and his kingdom? Let me tell you about Satan And his kingdom. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. You don't declare war against yourself in the average kingdom. It's just not a good strategy. Civil wars 
typically just produce failure and devastation in a country. There is no winner. In the same way, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Again, Jesus is popping out these, these what appear to be one-liners. We don't know how in-depth the parables went. But here he says, a house that's divided against itself won't be able to stand. And as many of us have experienced, a, a husband and a wife who are at war with each other, that can crush them. That can crush the family unit over time. A lot of wisdom there. And, and thus Jesus then goes on and continues on and says, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. The last part here is prophetic. Because the coming of Jesus does mean that Satan and his reign on this earth is coming to an end. In fact, he uses one final paragraph to drive home that point. Look up there again. It says, but no one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In this parable, guess who the strong man is? Right? This is Satan. And he is strong. Apart from the power of Jesus, we would have much to fear. But through the work of Jesus, Satan is bound. That's what Jesus is saying here. He has no power over you or me any longer. He has no power over anyone who will come to Jesus Christ in faith. Jesus is the most powerful. His work is already done. His work is done. In fact, I don't even think it's necessary to, to pray that Satan and his demons would be bound over another person because here in Mark, it says that it's done. Jesus is the victor. He is the one who can and, and did bind the strong man. So again, if you want to acknowledge the fact that Satan is bound over a certain circumstance or, or an area in your life or, or, or over uh, sickness or whatever it might be, that's fine. But acknowledge that the work is done. Jesus Christ did the binding. And now the stern warning for the scribes who will ascribe to the work uh, of, the whole, of, of the Holy Spirit here to Satan, right? We, we see that here, that Jesus is doing this work. The Holy Spirit's empowering to do it, and, and they ascribe it to Satan. We're going to see a stern warning here. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, we're getting into the thick of it now, and yet it's at the end. So I, I want you guys to focus in on these last couple of verses. The idea of the unpardonable sin. Maybe some of you have studied this. Maybe some of you have heard this and, and been a little confused by it. Maybe some of you are hearing about it for the first time. It's a tricky passage indeed. Uh, but with all humility and the amount that we studied this this week and read, I don't think it needs to be. So let's go through these verses together. Truly I say to you. Now this has been called a, a solemn assurance with the fourth from Jesus of an oath. When Jesus says this, you know he means business, right? Truly I say to you. We should all sit up in our seats and listen. What is Jesus about to say? Don't miss this. Before he talks about the sin, he talks about the forgiveness that he freely gives to anyone 
who would come to him. Look what it says. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus is willing, able, and ready to forgive all types of sin, even blasphemies. Okay? Now you may be saying, wait, 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 there's an unforgivable sin, right? This is giving me some, I'm getting a little anxious here, Pastor Mark. What, what's going on here? Don't skip ahead. We need to internalize the first powerful truth here. Jesus is willing, able, and ready to forgive all types of sins for you and for me, anything that you might have done in the past. Don't miss that. Worship the God who forgives and come to Jesus with everything that you have done. This but is for the likes of the scribes. This scary sin he describes, he calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's figure out what this is, right? For some of you that might be anxious about that or, or be concerned. Blasphemy is to be irreverent or defiant towards God. Jesus' warning is really specific here, though. These men were defying God's message through Jesus, the messenger. The scribes were coming against God through their uh, actions against Jesus. They were ascribing his works, his words, to Satan. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a very specific act. A person doing this would have no concern about God or fear of his reprisal. They would have no desire or, or ever ask Jesus for forgiveness of this. I don't believe a Christian could be guilty of the unpardonable sin. And if you're worried that you might have done it, well, then you haven't because you wouldn't be worried about it. Because someone who had would have no fear of God in him or her. However, as Jerry Vines puts it, it's dangerous to hear the gospel and turn it down. It's dangerous to hear that Jesus loves you and reject his love. It's dangerous uh, to put yourself in a position of rejection because there comes that final opportunity, that final time, that final appeal to receive Christ as your Savior. And when you pass over that point, you might not have another opportunity. You have rejected the invitation of the Holy Spirit. As we move forward, we have to remember that we have all been offered the gift of forgiveness of sin. And if we accept that, Jesus is faithful. Here in verse 31 it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now that the interlude is complete, we return to the theme of family here, right? I'm guessing that the previous family tried to accost Jesus because he was crazy, right? He must be crazy. And again, we don't know exactly who that was. Could have been extended family. Could have been friends that had been uh, riled up by the scribes. But now we see his mother and his brother show up. So whether they had a change of heart or whether it was just different family members, they want to talk to Jesus and they can't get within speaking distance. They sent word through the crowd, hey, Tell Jesus that his mom's here. Tell Jesus that his brothers are here. Jesus was inside and he was teaching. 
But what Jesus says in response will definitely seem odd to our family values theme today. Look at the way he responded. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at, about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, you might look at that and you might say, well, wait, this is crazy. Does Jesus uh, not like his family? Does he hate his family? Obviously not. And we know that. Again, we have the rest of this book. We have all the other gospels. We see that Jesus cared for his family, that he loved his family. Think about some of the last moments that Jesus had on this earth. He was caring for them from the cross. He showed them love. He showed love for his mother by asking John, his best friend, the beloved disciple, to care for her after his death. Jesus is trying to make a simple and profound point in what he said here. The strongest family is not the physical family. It's the spiritual family. They will be his family for all of eternity. And and if they've accepted his forgiveness, the grace that comes through that faith, Jesus wants a relationship with you, a familial relationship. So no matter, we go back to the very beginning when we were talking about whether you had a great family or a a horrid family, whether your memories are pleasant or, or not, or whether there was a healthy relationship or unhealthy, Jesus wants family with you. Jesus wants friendship with you. He wants that relationship, the closest kind the family kind. He wants you to seek him. He wants him, uh, you to give him your time and your attention. He wants you to value your relationship so much that you will want to obey what he says. Jesus is, is longing for the people that come to him, not just for what they can get from him, but because they actually love him, because they want to be in the family of God.